take your Bibles with me and open them to Luke chapter 8 this morning. Luke chapter 8. We're going to attempt to do something unique. We are going to attempt, I say that word with emphasis, cover verses 22 through 56. Because I think these Passages, although they are three different accounts and four different encounters, I think they go together. They have the same theme, they repeat the same message, have the same elements in them. I think Luke is trying to convey a certain truth to us this morning from the last half of chapter 8. This morning we are going to be looking at an important topic for all of us, not only for our salvation, but even in our continued walk with Christ, we are going to be looking at uh, what it means to encounter the divine, what it means to encounter God, and, and in this text, primarily encounter Jesus. I've read a quote to you before by A.W. Tozer, but it's a fabulous quote. I want to read it to you again. He says, what comes to our minds when we think about God says the most about us. What comes to our minds when we think about God says the most about us. I want to change that a little bit, although that's true. Let me add to it. What comes to our minds when we think about God determines how we relate to Him. How we approach Him. How we interact with Him. There is, within the Christian life and the Christian faith, and we know this all too well, there is a temptation to not think correctly about the person of God. There's even a temptation within the Christian life and the Christian faith to neglect certain aspects about God, to have an unbalanced view of God, isn't there? Now, I'm not talking about unbelievers. Of course, they care nothing about the significance or glory of God. That's no surprise to us. I'm talking about born-again believers. We are prone to have an unbalanced view of who God is, aren't we? We're prone to water Him down to our own delightful thoughts about Him to conform Him to how we want Him to, to be viewed or how we want to think about Him, to fit Him, as we have said for years and years and years, to fit Him in our own box of delight and, and pleasure and joy and happiness. And I call it an unbalanced view because there is an aspect of Scripture that exhorts us to have an intimate relationship with God. Right, that is, is what we're called to do. We're called to... To love Him as a brother. We've talked about that even in Luke chapter 8. We are in the family of God. We're to relate to Him as a, as a loving Father. Galatians 4, Romans talks about having the Spirit of God within our hearts and we can approach Him as Abba Father in intimacy and in love and in communion. Hebrews talks about drawing near to the throne of God in confidence and in, and in faith. James talks about drawing near to God and God drawing near to us. There is this element where we are commanded, encouraged, and exhorted from Scripture to have this close and personal and sincere and honest relationship with God. That's a benefit of salvation. But the unbalanced portion of that is we neglect the magnificence of God and the glory of God and the authority of God and the control of God and the power of God. Yes, we have a great benefit in salvation to draw near to Him in love and intimacy and, and fellowship. But those things 
As great a benefit as they are, those things divorced from reverence, awe, and humility are dangerous. If we draw near to God in confidence, and if we draw near to God in faith, and if we draw near to God in, in love and in, in intimacy, and yet we do not have reverence for Him, we do not have awe for Him, and we are not humbled by Him, then we are in a bad place. In fact, we could say we are presuming ourselves upon the person of God. And perhaps even approaching Him in pride. How a contradiction is that for a Christian to approach Almighty God in pride and yet aren't we not prone to do that when we neglect His glory and magnificence and authority and power? We are. We're prone to have an unbalanced view of God. And so what happens when we encounter the divine? What happens when we stand in the presence of God? What happens when we realize we're in the presence of God? That's what we're going to study in, in Luke chapter 8. That's the lesson we can learn this morning. To have a right understanding, a right perspective of who God is and, and just what it means that we relate to Him as born-again children. Now, this is an intriguing text that we're looking at. In fact, there aren't many in Scripture like it. Jesus is going to perform some works which we are accustomed to as we walk through the Gospel of Luke, but the responses to Jesus' works are unique. What we find are that these works that He does in verses 22-56 through 56 induce fear in people. The Jesus we encounter today is a fear-inducing Jesus. And that's because the works that He's doing in verses 22-26 through 26 reveal His divine nature and person. His divinity. These people, they know something of Jesus. They know His name. They know His reputation. They even know a glimpse of His power. But when they encounter His unveiled, unguarded divinity, they are paralyzed with fear. They're in awe. They're humbled. They stand in wonder of Christ. Peter talks about in his first sermon in Acts chapter 2 after the Holy Spirit's come his, his sermon at um, Pentecost. He talks about this being true of all the works of Christ. He says, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth is a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him. These works that Christ has been doing all along are to attest to us and, and confirm to us who He is as the Son of God. But today in this text, in these passages, it's particularly true of the people who are present with Him. Their hearts are ushered into the reality of who Jesus is. And that you cannot just casually treat Him. You cannot just flippantly toss Him about in your life. Oh, I want to follow Him today and I don't want to follow Him tomorrow. In fact, what we read about today quickly dispels our casual thoughts about Christ. What we read about today puts our hearts and minds in the right perspective of Him. We learn how to relate to Him. We learn who He is and how to approach Him. What we learn today should enhance our worship of Him. We have already sung about how worthy He is. Today's text only confirms that as His divinity is on display, as His deity, His glory is on display in these verses. 
Now I said this passage is intriguing and I've been thinking that all week and studying it. And it's because in most of the accounts that we study of Christ, especially in Luke, and this is what we're doing going through the Gospel of Luke, studying our Lord, most of the time as He does a miracle or does a work, people are responding in adoration and excitement. Unless you're a religious leader and you're jealous, most other people are excited about what He does. But in these four accounts, four encounters with four different people, there is gratefulness and there is adoration, but there's more so fear. What about Christ working here? What about the miracles that He does? What are in these particular miracles that make people afraid? What is it that He's saying and what is it that He does that make people tremble, that strikes terror in their hearts? This is a fear-inducing Jesus. A godly fear-inducing Jesus. Let me just pause for a moment and say maybe what I mean by fear. I think I've shared this story before, but I'll share it again because I will never forget it for as long as I live. Jamie and I were in Ellick. Church provided us a house there. And um, Jamie got up to get ready for school. And one particular morning, I woke up to a mouse running across my arm in bed. I hate mice. And so I, I heard the pitter-patter on my arm. I felt it on my arm. Sprung up in bed and thought, that's not normal, not natural. I clicked on the light right above our bed and that, that demon mouse was running at me. And so I screamed. It darted under my pillow. And I ran into the bathroom and jumped on the counter where Jamie was getting ready. And I, and I said, you've got to get this mouse. I, I can't live here anymore. That was fear. I screamed till my throat hurt. And, and I was terrified. Now that's not the fear we're talking about when we talk about the fear of the Lord. Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, when we, we're going to reference that verse later when we get there. It talks about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is this realization of who He is. It's an understanding of His magnificence. It's an understanding of His almighty nature that He is far and, and beyond us. He's transcendent. Bigger than us. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, we talk about realizing who He is. And when you realize who He is, that is the beginning of knowledge. That's the beginning of reality, right? What Jesus does induces fear. It makes people realize who He is. They're ushered into reality with Christ. In fact, these people are going to be afraid of things and then when Jesus performs His work, they're going to be even more afraid. They realize divinity is in their midst. Christ is God and He's in their, their presence. In all four encounters here, Jesus is going to do something that no one else can do. In fact, in all four encounters, people have tried to resolve the issue that Jesus encounters and they failed to do it. And yet Jesus shows up and He takes care of the problem. And they're exposed to raw, pure, magnificent power. Unveiled, unguarded, unhidden power coming from the hand and mouth of Christ. And it's that that paralyzes them in fear. 
a realization that this man isn't just a teacher. And in fact, he's not just a man. He's, he's something more, isn't he? In fact, most of these people are going to know and would willingly admit, including the disciples, that Jesus is a man of God. He's been sent by God. But most of them, in fact, we could probably say all of them, have yet to come to a real, full realization that He's not just sent of God, He is God in the flesh. And church, that changes the way we relate to Him, right? When we're reminded of that truth. When we let that truth sit upon our soul and sink into our hearts, doesn't that change how we interact with Christ? Most certainly. These individuals come into a realization that this is the, the one supreme being of the universe. There's no other response than grateful humility in His presence. How unfortunately true is it for us so many people sit in the church and they think of Jesus as a man sent from God yet they've never realized He is God in the flesh dying on the cross for them. May today we be like the disciples and the, the crowd of people witnessing a demon-possessed man be healed and, and Jairus and his wife and the crowd witnessing a woman healed. May we be like them and realize Jesus is more than just who we may think He is. He is exactly who He is, says He is. He is the Son of God. Let's read the text this morning. In verse 22, I'm going to read the whole text because it's important for us and then we're going to race car our way through it, probably. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. One day Jesus got into a boat with His disciples and He said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out and as they sailed, He fell asleep. Now as we read the text, try to pick up on what Jesus is doing and how people are responding, and all the connections that are in these uh, passages. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased. And there was a calm. And he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, these are, these are His disciples, who then is this that He commands even winds and water and they obey Him? Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met Him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time He had worn no clothes and He had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but 
he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Verse 30, Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. But now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank and into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen of the pigs saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about twelve years of age and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, Who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive that power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear. Only believe, and she will be made well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the father and mother of the child. And all were weeping and mourning for her, but he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that something should be given her to eat, and her parents were amazed. But he charged them not to tell anyone what had happened. As we walk through this lengthy passage, we're going to look at what Christ has power over that induces fear in people's lives. The first thing we look at is in verses 22 through 25. Jesus has power over nature, or if you'd rather, power over creation. Luke takes us to an occasion on the Sea of Galilee when a storm has arisen. If you know anything of the geography of the Sea of Galilee, you know it sets about 700 feet below sea level. It's surrounded on all sides by steep banks and uh, more, more or less a mountainous region. And the cold air that comes down from the mountains when it collides with the warm air that comes up from the lake suddenly and severely strikes up storms. That's what happened in this instance. 
It's calm enough for Jesus and His disciples to get into the boat, attempt a journey. It's calm enough for Jesus to fall asleep, take a nap, and not be concerned about any kind of danger. But verse 23, this instance of sudden and severe storms arises when the windstorm comes. Now, I want us to understand the significance of this storm because it paints the picture of how glorious the power of Christ is. Number one, we consider in this storm, at the end of verse 23, they were filling with water and were in danger. Now, you do not have to be a naval expert to understand it's not natural for water to be in the boat. Water's to be outside the boat. So when water is coming in the boat, it's a dangerous, dangerous situation. Now, we also need to understand this is not just the surf occasionally splashing in. I learned long ago when I was a kid, if you don't want it to get wet, don't bring it on a boat. Water splashes in a boat. What is happening here is the waves are cresting so high, it is swamping the vessel that these disciples and Jesus are in. So we can picture in our minds high rough seas clashing on the wooden boat. The second thing though that enhances the significance of the storm is we consider who's on the boat. Professional fishermen are on the boat. Several professional fishermen. They had weathered storms before. They had dealt with this. In fact, this is their profession. They know how to navigate a boat. They actually are the naval experts of their time. This probably isn't the first storm they had been in. And yet, they are terrified. That says something about the severity of the situation. They can't handle it. They've been in numerous storms before. They know how to handle their, their lives on seas. And yet, this storm is so severe... They are afraid they are going to die. Verse 24. They have no control. No ability to save themselves. Somewhat a picture of the Gospel, isn't it? They knew all the right things to do, and yet this storm is so severe they couldn't handle it. And so, verse 24, they call out to Jesus, Master, Master, we are dying here. You're taking a nap, and we are dying. We can't, we can't do anything. We know... The inevitable outcome of a storm like this. All the situations are lining up. We're going down. I find their cry to Jesus rather intriguing because they acknowledge Him as Master. There's a, uh, an authoritarian title given to Him. And there's a, there's a, a symbol of submission to Him on their part. Master, Master, You're in charge here. We know that. We're dying and yet they failed to realize, evidenced by their question at the end of verse 25, who then is this? They failed to realize that they call out to the Master of the Sea, don't they? The One who controls the Sea of Galilee. In fact, in studying this, I thought of the book of Job. And, and uh, Job chapter 38, God is actually rebuking Job uh, with, a, with a very stinging rebuke. Perhaps one of the most stinging rebukes in all of Scripture. And he says in Job chapter 38 about himself, verses 4 through 11, he says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Who stretched out the line upon it? Now this is, this is a, a rhetorical question. It is obviously God is the answer to all of this. 
On what were the earth's bases sunk? Who laid its cornerstones when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or, Job, who shut in the sea with its doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far you shall come and no farther and here shall your proud waves be stayed. The answer is it's Jesus, the man in the boat in Luke chapter 8. He's the one who said, here are your limits. Here are your boundaries, Sea of Galilee. Here's the man who in Genesis 1 spoke this sea into existence. They cry out, Master, Master, we're perishing. Unknowingly crying out to the Master of the very water that they are on. They haven't realized it yet, but they will. Because Jesus gets up from His nap. He's not cranky like I would be. He stands up. He rebukes, verse 24, the wind. He rebukes the raging waves. And what happened? They immediately ceased. And what? There was a calm. Just as before, there, there's a calm. The waters are fine again. In this instance, the disciples think they're dying, about to drown, and in a single moment, Jesus speaks and everything is right again. Let's attempt to picture the scene together if we could. You have the wind and air rushing down from the mountains, howling past your ears. You have the waves screaming and crashing into the boat and all around you. No escape in sight. Darkness from the clouds is covering the light of the sun. Jesus stands up and He speaks a single word. And in that moment, all the winds disappear. The waves lay flat. The clouds flee away. And it's calm. For the disciples, this is a power that hasn't been seen before. This is something unique. This is something shocking to them. They have realized in a single moment we are in the presence of someone far greater than we anticipated. We're in the presence of the divine. Their only response can be fear as it is. They've seen the works of Christ before. As we've walked through Luke, we've seen the works of Christ. Miracle after miracle after miracle. Provision after provision after provision. We're going to continue to see these things. He didn't hide His works and His miracles. What is it about this one that strikes fear in them and causes them to question who He is? Church, it is pure and raw power that just by His voice, creation obeys Him. Oh, who are we to say no to Christ? Who are we to disobey? And who are we to neglect and disregard this Jesus? This is pure and raw power that cannot be matched. In short, Jesus has just done what only God can do. In fact, 
all throughout the New Testament or Old Testament, the only one who controls creation is God. Now, these men see Jesus stand up and by the breath of His voice command creation and more so, creation obeys. They are in, in their own minds, finally realizing they are in the presence of God. And now, they're more afraid of Jesus than they were of the storm. There's something significant going on here. There's something powerful going on here. He is so much greater than we are. We couldn't handle the storm. We couldn't steer a boat. He speaks and everything is calm. Such power, church, instantly changes what they think of Jesus. And shouldn't it be the same for us? Such power instantly changes what we think of Jesus. Their hearts are struck with a godly fear. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fear of the Lord is the realization of the person of God. They have realized they are in the presence of God. I thought about the wonderful hymn of John Newton, Amazing Grace. The second verse of that hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear." Grace extended from God is what taught my heart to recognize and realize who God is. Grace taught my heart to fear. Grace opened my eyes. It is grace that these men were able to witness the power of Christ, and now their eyes are opened to Him. And how we would do well to soak up the same lesson. Does, doesn't this kind of power change the way we worship Jesus? Doesn't this kind of power and this kind of authority and this strength and this ability change the way we pray to Him? change the way we trust Him with our lives? most certainly does. Doesn't it change the way we read about Him? most certainly does. Doesn't it change the way we think about Him going to the cross for us? What power does He possess? What control does He possess? What authority does He possess? And yet, we find Him humbling Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians chapter 2, for your sin, for my sin. What allegiance does He deserve? What devotion is He worthy of? Oh, may we all be like Pastor Zhang and stand up for Christ in the face of persecution because He's worthy of it, church. Here's the all-powerful God humbled into the human flesh. And the disciples realize it. I can't treat Him casually anymore. I can't ignore His words anymore. I can't miss out on worshiping Him anymore. I can't put off trusting Him anymore. I have to do something with this Jesus. I have to choose to follow Him and take Him at His word. 
or I have to reject Him. That's the decision disciples are going to be faced with when they ask in verse 25, who then is this? That the elements of creation obey Him? That's the decision we have this morning. We're going to stop in this passage because we're out of time. But the truth of the text is still piercing our souls. Jesus isn't just some side hobby, is He? And He's not some puny God that's going to be forced to the cross by Roman soldiers and jealous high priests. And He's not something that we can just partake in and He's not someone we can just hang out with on Sundays or Wednesdays, is He? This Jesus, if what is true and the shock and awe and fear that's instilled in the disciples is true, is a Jesus that invades every detail of our lives. The Jesus that informs every detail of our lives. This is a Jesus we submit to. So some of you have a real, real response to make this morning. A real choice to make. Maybe, perhaps, you have been like the disciples. In the presence of Jesus, willing to acknowledge the, the power of Jesus and even that He's sent from God, but yet you haven't realized the divinity of Jesus, that He is God. And you have to make a choice about Him. To trust Him for salvation or reject Him. Some of you have that choice this morning. And do not be fooled by the enemy to think you don't. And do not be ignorant in your own mind to think you don't. For some of you, you have just been exposed face to face with the real Jesus and you have a choice to make. For those of us who are born again believers, who have all the benefits of salvation, being a son and a daughter of God Himself, drawing near to Him in intimacy and fellowship and in love and in unity, we ought not to neglect humility before God. We ought not neglect respect before God. Let me just make a side plug here. This is why I so guard our Sunday morning worship times. We are here to worship this God, not celebrate ourselves. We're here to exalt this Jesus because it is this Jesus who died for us, church. So our worship should be informed by His magnificence and yet His loving willingness to die for our sin. We should stand with this Jesus. Our faith should be strengthened by this Jesus. The same power that calmed the raging storm on the sea is the same power that speaks love into our hearts. The same God in the boat with these disciples is the same God that wants a relationship with us. Unbeliever, you have a choice, but believer, this changes how we worship and relate and think of Jesus. Such almighty power humbling Himself for us. And so we are going to sing a song here called More Than Amazed by uh, some, some guy. More Than Amazed about Christ. And it's our opportunity to really sing with our hearts 
from our souls about the truth we've just encountered with Jesus on the Sea of Galilee. But it's also a time for us to reflect. What does this truth mean for me? How does it change my life? How does it impact my heart? What does it mean for my today and my tomorrow? What does it mean for right now as I worship? You cannot ignore this, Jesus. The same fear that the disciples have are going to be the same, is, is the same fear that the crowd's going to have as we look at the next passage. And it's going to be the same fear that the woman has as she's healed as we look at the next passage. It's going to be the same awe and wonder that Jairus and his wife has when Jesus raises their daughter. This Jesus means you encounter the divine. And when you encounter the divine, you are gratefully humbled by Him. Lord, we thank You that we can read of You in Your Word. You were present at this event, O Lord. You were the source of this event. And the truth is, some of us need You to strike terror and fear in our hearts this morning. Some of us, Lord, need to be reminded of Your magnificence, of Your glory, that You are the Almighty God over all creation. That You possess all the power, all the control, and therefore You are in charge. And some of us need that fear to sit upon our hearts to realize that You are the one we answer to You. You are the judge. And we are either found in You or not. What a comfort to know that if we are born again by Your grace, that such power is our fortress and our shield. It is our comfort and our strength. O oh Lord, let us encounter You not as we would have You to be, but as You truly are. Let us see You for who You are, God in the flesh. Let us realize how significant that is when we consider the cross. You had the power in a moment to speak all things into existence. You had a power in the moment to calm a raging storm. And even at the cross, you had the power in the moment to speak yourself free of execution. Yet you willingly endured the suffering and the shame for us. What an awesome Savior. When we come to you, Lord, we come to God. We thank you for meeting with us. Help us to know how to respond to You. To make the correct decision for You. To surrender our lives to You. For You and You alone are worthy of it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.